Mustangs, descendants of the first horses brought to this continent by Cortez and the conquest of Mexico. Spirited herds of animals roaming the prairies of our American frontiers, their thundering hoofs heralding the birth of the West. Captured and broken, they became the constant companion and servant of the Indian. Pioneer spirits turned westward, their very lives depending on the endurance of the horse. New frontiers were established, and thus began the roundup of wild creatures, horses to aid man in building an empire. In mad fury, stallions engage in combat, hurling defiance at man or beast as lassoes tighten about ponies who struggle for an unfettered existence. The same indomitable spirit lives today in the fighting bronco of Wild West fame. Although highly mechanized, the Army boasts fine horse specimens which make up our crack cavalry units, and intelligent breeding is responsible for the amazing sulky trotters and the thrilling thoroughbred polo ponies with speed and stamina to spare. But it is at Churchill Downs where America's finest racehorses are to be seen in this country's most famous turf classic, the Kentucky Derby. Here, breeders and sportsmen enter their blue blood thoroughbreds in a performance of speed. Sleek, powerful bodies pound on them, a thrilling page in Kentucky's colorful cavalcade of horses through the air. Almost within the shadow of this historic track, another event was to transpire, bringing more glory to the bluegrass state. Midnight, April 1933. A watchman makes the rounds at Clairbon Farms, Paris, Kentucky. Hello. Hello, Doc. Yeah. Hurry, Doc. Steady, swing on. And thus the colt was born, a frightened bundle of fuzz, reassured by the nickering of its mother and the touch of gentle hands. Horses at birth measure the same from the knees down as when full grown. Like some children, colts too need coaxing at mealtime. And proud indeed of the baby is Hardtack, father of the colt. And even granddaddy, man of war, a champion if there ever was one, takes the matter seriously and demands a bow. Thus, with such names as Hardtack and Man of War in the family, it was decided to name the little fellow Seabiscuit. Just a few hours old, yet cocky enough to follow swing on his mother outside the barn for the first glimpse of a sunrise and a world full of strange things. Right from the start, he demanded extra attention, a funny little fuzz tail with dangling legs that supported a wee body. Carefree hours spent romping with an alert mother whose every action denoted her great maternal pride in this awkward youngster. With the passing of time, Seabiscuit grew stronger, and so did his appetite. He just naturally wanted to eat all the time. And when his little tummy got real full, sleepy eyes fought against closing. Oh, hum. Life was just a bowl of cherries. Nothing much to worry about, except 
that even little colts must be hauled or broken sooner or later, and as far as Seabiscuit was concerned, it was much sooner than he desired. Fortunately, the halter was only on for short spells, allowing him plenty of time to gaze at distant horizons, dreaming of things that only little colts think of. But Mother's commanding Winnie brings him back to reality. Gosh, he had almost forgotten. It was mealtime again. Existence for the colt was a beautiful thing, days magically turning into months. Seabiscuit has grown into the weanling stage. Then tragedy strikes. All of the weanlings, including Seabiscuit, are rounded up and separated from the mares. Mothers they will never see again. Frantically, they dash about in another enclosure, trying to fathom the separation. Frightened weanlings who do not realize that they have grown up. Seabiscuit alone crowds the rail as a handler pauses with swing on his mother. Fearfully, he calls. But for the first time, mother is not by his side. Just an old mare whose eyes longingly follow the little colt of yesterday who now stands separated from her, a man. Months pass. Seabiscuit leaves Kentucky, bound for Aqueduct Park, New York, consigned to his owners, the Wheatley Stables, where he receives his first training in being saddled from James Fitzsimmons, veteran trainer. Time is spent acquainting the horse with just a light cloth. Repeatedly, handlers try it, until finally the horse becomes accustomed to the procedure and allows himself to be saddled. Highly intelligent, Seabiscuit took readily to his lessons, accepting the presence of an exercise boy on his back without too much fuss. Much easier to handle in this respect than his father, Hardtack. This accomplished, Seabiscuit was prepared for the important task of conducting himself properly at the barrier. Walkthroughs, standing still without nervous displays of temperament, all necessary for good barrier manners. Then the final touch in his education, Breaking from the barrier for the first time, and Seabiscuit is ready for his racing career. Hialeah, Florida, January 1935. Seabiscuit has entered in his first race, an allowance event for two-year-olds, a distance three-eighths of a mile. Suddenly, horses leap in unison, and the race is on. This is a new thrill for Seabiscuit. Never before had he heard the roar of the crowd. Flying dirt flicks both horse and rider. Sweating beats struggle to overcome the lengthening strides of the leaders. Seabiscuit answers the urging of Jockey Stout with an added burst of speed, but ahead of him, flying figures still hold their positions. Jockey Stout attempts to pull on the outside to gain more room, but there's danger of throwing the horse off stride, and Stout holds Seabiscuit in readiness for an opening that never came. Into the stretch, it's Wahey and Wise Duke with Seabiscuit fighting it out with Blue Donna for third place. But it wasn't his day, and Seabiscuit runs forth, earning $50, his first winning. Tired and excited, his first race over, but still plenty game. Meanwhile, in California, Charles S. Howard, Western racing enthusiast and breeder, was seeking a good thoroughbred for his stable, one that might be worth staking, and assisting him in his search was Tom Smith, Howard's veteran trainer. Publications devoted to horses were carefully checked for leads that might result in a purchase. Days on end spent at various racing meets, always seeking a horse that would answer their rigid demands. Not too expensive, yet a thoroughbred that possessed that elusive something that makes a winner. Across the continent, Seabiscuit still carried the Wheatley colors. Never considered a great horse by his owners, he was cast in the role of breadwinner in the overnight claiming events in minor stakes. Literally a gypsy horse who was running his head off at Eastern Tracks. Seventeen times he went postward before winning a race. Still he campaigned, his great heart refusing discouragement. 
participating in the amazing amount of 35 events in his first season. Enough races to have ruined an ordinary two-year-old, but Seabiscuit took it and came back for more. Ever interesting and colorful is the horse auction. Turfmen gather from far and wide to swap horses and yarns. Here, fine thoroughbreds are hammered down by Doc Bond, famous Kentucky auctioneer. Still seeking a horse, Charles Howard is an interested spectator. Now to make me a 15, legal 15, 15, 14, 14, 15, 15, 15, thank you. 1,700, will you? I got 1,600, 17, legal 17, 1,800. Plenty of horses for sale, but none that please Howard, and his search still goes on. Saratoga, August 1936. Howard and trainer Smith watch the Mohawk claiming stakes. A powerful bay horse is streaking thunderlike past other thoroughbreds. Both men are entranced by his style and performance. Seabiscuit almost seems to sense their eyes upon him and flashed across the line an easy winner. Shortly after the race, Howard and his trainer look Seabiscuit over. Both are thrilled and excited. Their long search is over. Here is the horse they have been looking for. Hastily completing his examination, Howard immediately contacted the Wheatley Stable representative who was willing to sell, and the price agreed upon was $8,000, $2,000 more than the amount asked for Seabiscuit in his last claiming race. There is no question but Howard would have paid twice the purchase price. So keen was his desire to possess this great but misunderstood horse. Formalities over, Seabiscuit greets his new owner and comes under the Howard colors for the first time. A great break for the animal, and a feather in Howard's hat for his shrewd foresight. Almost immediately, the checking over process began, allowing owner and trainer the opportunity of closely steadying the horse in action. Here was championship material that needed only development and care. Like a lodestone, Seabiscuit drew the attention of grooms and handlers alike, while owner and trainer patiently awaited the results. To these men, Seabiscuit was no ordinary horse, and he became the focal point of an intense conditioning campaign. Important was the foot care, legs and bandage, bandage and shoes, metal shod hooks to grip the turf, a picture repeated over and over again. Here was activity, feverish in its intensity, a bay-colored muscular machine literally taken apart and restyled to satisfy the exacting demands of Howard's rehabilitation of the horse no one wanted. The rising sun of an early morning was the signal which brought Seabiscuit out for the necessary workouts, an event religiously attended by Howard and Trainer Smith. Seabiscuit's every practice performance was a scene to behold. Here was a page from the past, a charger with hooded head vaulting into space. His is an effortless stride, a symphony of motion. He is not a big horse, standing only 15 and 3 quarter hands tall, extremely quick and clever and very controllable. Tail set high and flying, Seabiscuit shows no weakness. No effects of the 47 races engaged in as a trial horse for the Wheatley Stables. Patience and kindness, plus the fine training of Tom Smith, have converted Seabiscuit's courage and intelligence into speed. Speed that was amazingly consistent. Highly satisfied, Howard enters the horse at Detroit for a series of races. Sporting the white, red, and white triangle, and signing of his new owner, Seabiscuit thunders past Professor Paul and the great Azure car to win the governor's handicap and over $4,000 for his owner. Other victories followed, including the $5,500 Scarsdale handicap at Empire City. Then westward to Bay Meadows, California. He continued his streak, winning two races in succession, his earnings totaling over $40,000. At this point, owner Howard called a halt to Seabiscuit's activities. The horse had made good with a vengeance, and a two-month vacation was ordered. Days devoted to satisfying his healthy appetite, a trade he possessed even as a colt. 
Within the short period of four months, this rejected horse, weeded out of a great stable, became front-page news and rose above his normal destiny to repay Mr. and Mrs. Howard for their kindness and affection. A fighting horse with a heart that matched his owner's confidence. February, Santa Anita, Seabiscuit loses $100,000 by a nose to Rosemont in the handicap, betting $20,000 for second place, the beginning of his amazing financial march across the tracks of the United States. Seabiscuit took them all on, asking no quarter and giving none. Back and forth he shuttled, from train to track, covering thousands of miles, a swashbuckling animal that broke records in horses' hearts. Sports-loving fans had found an idol and backed Seabiscuit to the limit. Fifteen times he went postward during 1937, returning millions of dollars to his legion of admirers, winning 11 races, placing second twice, third once, and boosting his earnings to over $168,000. 1938, Seabiscuit, thoroughly rested, is entered in the Santa Anita $100,000 handicap. Eighteen horses are set to go. Dynamite, awaiting only a detonation to set them off. Tenseness grips the crowd. All eyes watch the start. And they're off in a gallop that soon turns out to be one of the most exciting contests of the year. Pompoon and Seabiscuit are the favorites in this fourth running of the $137,000 Santa Anita Handicap. But Seabiscuit is bounced around at the start and has a lot of going to overtake the early leaders. Terrific on a fast track. Aneroid's in the leader, but Seabiscuit's coming up. And so is Stagehand, battling Pompoon and running like the wind. As they enter the stretch, it's Seabiscuit and Stagehand. Seabiscuit lost the Classic by a nose last year, and again he's challenged. Stagehand's right up there with the leader. Earl Sandy's training shows as the big colt fights off Seabiscuit's effort to pull away. What a race. Almost instinctively, all eyes turn upward to the photo booth. Within the confines of this tiny room, high above the grandstand, a piece of sensitized paper holds the answer that means $100,000 to Seabiscuit or Stagehand, and thousands more to those who had bet the horses to win. A skilled technician, realizing the importance, attached to the still damp picture, hurriedly dries, and inserts it into a container. An eternity for those who anxiously await the outcome, yet only a matter of split seconds before the picture is on its way down the slender wire to the judge's platform. Tensely, Mr. and Mrs. Howard await the outcome as the judges closely examine the photograph. The crowd is almost hushed as pencil and eyes determine a microscopic difference. Tote lights flash. A crowd roars. Stage hand is the winner. A minute difference, yet enough to deprive Seabiscuit for the second time the honor of winning America's richest stake. It mattered not that he carried 130 pounds to the winner's hundred or the bumping he received at the start, just one of those things which made owner Howard realize that even in defeat, Seabiscuit was still the champ and hurled the horse into another strenuous campaign, a campaign of vindication and an attack on Sunbow's great financial record of over $376,000. Seabiscuit had turned on the heat. Track after track saw him in repeated victories that brought more glory and money to owner Howard. And the cry went up, stop that horse. Each race saw additional weight loaded on his back, every stride forcing the indicator up and up. Here was an apparition that defied the impulse given him. Seabiscuit was fighting not only horses, but the handicappers who matched his victories with additional poundage, establishing remarkable records despite his back-breaking handicap. 
Meanwhile, Howard canceled the match race between Seabiscuit and War Admiral, and reporters sought the reason. Sporting pages throughout the nation demanded the race, some intimating that Howard's unwillingness was fear of defeat, that Biscuit's legs were ailing, and Howard wasn't taking chances until his horse was in condition to settle the question of turf supremacy. Working tirelessly, Alfred G. Vanderbilt, vice president of the Maryland Jockey Club, finally secures Howard's promise for the second time to enter Seabiscuit in the match race. And almost immediately, War Admiral arrives at Pimlico, ready for the battle of the century. Unlike Seabiscuit, War Admiral was not overworked as a two-year-old and sported the imposing record of 19 wins in 23 starts with earnings of $257,000. Next to arrive was the old cross-country traveler himself, Seabiscuit, fresh as a daisy, having spent most of the trip sleeping with nary a kink in those powerful legs that had carried him to the post 83 times before with earnings of over $331,000. He had set a pace that was blistering and almost in every instance Seabiscuit, when defeated, forced his opponents to break track records. With only a short time left before the match race, Howard and Smith left nothing to chance, particular attention being paid to Seabiscuit's special saddle, a unique bit of racing tack with its slotted sections, each containing birdshot to make up weight that his jockey would lack. Finally, the big day arrives, and Howard gives his jockey, George Wolfe, a pep talk before the race. 40,000 excited spectators await the event, but there is still time to spare. Calmly, jockey Wolfe gets into the Howard silks, his mind already picturing the start. The prize is $15,000, but it means more than that to the biscuit, and Wolfe will be in there pitching. Friendly foes, jockey Wolfe greets Charlie Kurtzinger, pilot for Samuel Riddle, whose eyes follow his great horse, War Admiral, carrying number one. The Biscuit is the underdog in the betting, but Mr. and Mrs. Howard know their horse, who is the picture of confidence as Wolf heads in for the start. Both horses are jockeyed into position for the walk-up start as an entire nation crowds its radios for Graham McNamee's description of the event. Here was the race of the century, the answer to America's turf supremacy. And they're off, neck and neck, for the mile and 316th race. Biscuit bears down at the quarter-mile pole and pulls ahead by a length. The purse is $15,000, and Seabiscuit will be the second biggest money winner of all time if he can keep the pace. The backstretch battle is hard on both the horses, and it's here that the Admiral makes his bid. But Seabiscuit hangs right on, matching stride for stride. As they reach the three-quarter-mile post, Seabiscuit hangs on to his lead by a nose. Both horses are a fraction under the track record as they reach the mile pole and enter the stretch. It's the Admiral's last bid, and he fails. Seabiscuit is going away, increasing his lead with every stride. With 40,000 frenzied people cheering him on, the great son of hardtack comes down to the finish line in the upset of the year. He gets across the finish with a new track record. The grandest horse in 40 years of racing had won his greatest victory. Only $30,000 separated him from Sunbow as the greatest money winner of all time. Whether Seabiscuit passes Sunbow's record is something for the future to decide. But we know that when his time comes to leave this existence, he'll be breezing along like a champion down the home stretch to that paradise reserved for yesterday's greats. Twenty Grand, Gallant Fox, Cavalcade, Zeb, and Farlap. And our money and hopes will always be on Seabiscuit's nose.